I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Two weeks ago, Ridley Scott launched a scathing dismissal of the historical discipline. When asked about the embedding of mythology into the fabric of his retelling of the Battle of Austerlitz in his new film, Napoleon, his response was bombastic. Were you there? No. Well then. He also remarked that only the first two books written about Napoleon have anything new to say, demonstrating a catastrophic lack of appreciation for what it is that historians actually do. He then doubled down, suggesting that those who flag inaccuracies in film need to get a life. Tonight, four of the up-and-coming generation of historians respond to Ridley Scott's criticisms in a mild-mannered, respectful, but also constructive fashion. We take apart the concept of whether or not you can be historically accurate in film and whether doing so is even desirable. We talk about what it is that historians do, why what we do matters, how we know what we know, how we're careful with what we think we know, and why comments like this are unhelpful and damaging to the profession that takes years of commitment. Up next on the Napoleonic Wars pod. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars pod, where, as you can hear, we have a bee in our bonnet. And that bonnet is the history bonnet. This this analogy has already got rather laboured and tedious. Um, I have, well, I, I was actually corrected in between recording the intro and um, recording this. I, I, I suggested that there are four up and coming historians um in in the room with me and somebody suggested and you give you no prizes for just for for working out who um it was suggested that there are three up-and-coming historians plus me thanks for that luke it's simply Um, a matter of math there are not four historians in the room with you you are one of the four yeah i mean that that's a nice effort to dig yourself out of that hole um keep digging though let me know when you reach australia um As you can hear, we have Dr. Luke Reynolds in the room, assistant professor at the University of Connecticut and author of Who Owned Waterloo. 
We have Claire Civita, researcher and lecturer at Bristol University, the arts and BBC Next Generation Thinker, and the author of Tragedy and Nation in the Age of Napoleon. And last but by no means least, we have Assistant Professor uh, Dr Alex Burns, who's at um, Franciscan University, and who is the author of A Fetchrift to the late, great uh, Professor Duffy, entitled The Changing Face of Old Regime Warfare. Thank you all for taking the time to join me. I know this is a complex, um, potentially quite fraught topic, but one that needs careful um, consideration. Perhaps before we dive into the questions, what was your initial reaction, both to the news that the Ridley Scott film was coming out, i.e. we were getting a blockbuster on Napoleon, and then to the the comments themselves, because the point has been made that what he might have done here is played an absolute blinder in terms of publicity, in terms of taking us apart, getting us very angry, and kind of forcing us into this reaction of, of doing something like this, which then just generates more publicity for his film, which may be entirely valid, but the trouble is that it's quite an insidious approach. Um, so let me let me go around the room and, and get your <laughs> excuse me, get your reactions. Claire, start us off. So when I first heard that there was going to be a film about Napoleon, I was very excited. I mean, I get excited when there are new books about Napoleon. So like a big blockbuster Ridley Scott film. I thought it was incredibly exciting and and I'm going on the 24th and I, I'm really looking forward to it. So um, I'm just going to add that there. And then um, in terms of the remarks, I think he knows what he's doing. Um, there's been a lot written about his approach to history and this film and other films as well. So I'm afraid I sit on the side of the fence that's slightly more marketing and um, trying to create a debate. Okay, doke. Um, Alex, let me get your take as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I think that it is a really great way to generate free publicity uh, for the film. And I mean, I was also incredibly excited to hear that this film was coming out. I mean, in some ways, I, I think of Ridley Scott going back to the Duelists as being like the Napoleonic filmmaker. I mean, that's a, such a such a wonderful film, uh, and to have him return to this subject, I think, is really uh, well. I was quite pleased. I, I do think that the way that he's doing it this time through is maybe doing a little bit more violence to the past, but maybe that's something we can get into. I mean, that is at least part of the reason that we're here, right? To to look look at the the damage that does or doesn't get caused by by comments like this. Luke, let me get your take. Um, Waterloo features, so you know, hopefully, you'll see a, a spike in book sales. We can only hope, um, and it's very kind of of uh, Sir Ridley and and all that uh, that's around him to uh, to drop this film almost exactly when my paperback comes out. Uh, very grateful. Um, first of all, I want to say just on the PR side, this is a man who made his name and cut his teeth in advertising. Like this is where he got his start. He is the he is the voice that gave us the 1984 Apple commercial, right? That iconic piece of filmmaking. He knows how to get people talking. He knows how to get people marketing. Uh, and I really do think I, I'm with, with Claire on this one. It's, it is on the marketing side that he's doing this. Um, I was over the moon when I heard this. Uh, although obviously, you know, being who I am, I would have much preferred him to do a Wellington film. Uh, although casting Everett as Wellington, I have no problem with. That's a, that's, that's a bit of genius. Um, 
you know, I've I've loved Ridley Scott's historical epics since I first saw Gladiator in the cinemas. And then I'm one of the few people who actually defends Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, admittedly, the director's cut, not the original theatrical butchery. That was not his fault. Um, yeah, my my problem with this is that he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. Because if you if you listen to him and if you watch him, you know, he's very proud of the bits that are historically accurate. And he's talking about how he hopes to get people interested in the period through this. And then he dismisses the history. And I'm like, choose a lane, right? But you you also, can't... Go ahead, Claire, please. He's really, um, in the section that I saw where he's talking about Toulon, he's mm -hmm. so proud of the fact that kind of like, it's all true, it's all historically accurate. And then there are other bits that, that don't seem to matter. And so that's one of the things that for me, I was like, so why do some scenes matter more than others? Yeah. No, I noticed that too. And it's exactly where I'm coming from on this, right? And at the end, he says, you know, hopefully this will get people interested in the period. And I'm just like, all right, so you get people interested in the period. And then you tell them that they can't read anything accurate on the period because only the first two books matter. I think for me, number of books, sorry, Claire, carry on. Even the number of books, he said, you know, there were 400 books. I mean, I don't think anyone knows exactly how many works have been written about Napoleon. Jean Tula estimated that it was 80,000. I typed this into Google to see what Google said, just out of a matter of interest, and it was like 300,000. Um, I went on the BNF catalog and looked for like Napoleon as a subject. It was well over 1,000. So, you know, it's not, there are definitely more than 400 works. Maybe they've used 400 works in terms of the film. Maybe that's where that figure comes from. I have absolutely no idea. But I think at least recognizing the amount of history that's been written about this period is really important. I mean, if I was going to be sassy, then I'd say, well, why would they read 400 books when only apparently the first two matter? Um, but that, that's probably a, a little bit too catty of me. Um, but it's it's a really important point, right? Um, that, yes, the... I mean, for me, this was always going to be inaccurate. That, that was a, a given, and we're going to get into this in, in just a second when we talk about, is it realistic to expect historical accuracy? For me, no. No, it's not going to be historically accurate. It's a film. I've been banging this drum ever since the first trailer dropped, for heaven's sake. And everybody kind of goes, it, it's amazing. If you take the, it's a film, you've got to accept it as a film. Everybody gets incredibly angry that you're not there as the voice of historical knowledge and reason, getting very rivet countery. And yet, if you turn around and point to the fact that sometimes you just need to be at least delicate with the history, people turn around and go, but it's a film. You, you genuinely cannot please people. It, mm. It's baffling. But that is fundamentally my stance, that there was a very obvious out for Ridley when these comments were put forward by Dan Snow, who I do not blame in the slightest for what transpired. just want to make that point very clear. He asked the questions, the very logical questions that you would ask him in that scenario. And Ridley's response is Ridley's response. But he had an obvious point that he could have made, which is, it's a film. At that point, you could turn around and go, get a grip, you know? Um, and he didn't do that. He went on the attack. Um, and it's, I, I think there's a, excuse me, a plausible argument to be made that it, yes, as Claire says, is a, a PR marketing ploy. But why bite the hand that feeds? Because he wants to appeal to the wider community. Of course he does. But he also knows that there's a diehard Napoleonic community, people like us, who are going to listen to that and go, um that that's either wrong or, or it's not okay and it, it perplexes me um i suppose we should move on is it realistic 
to expect historical accuracy from films. I've had my say. What I'm interested actually in is can a balance be achieved? My argument would be yes, it can. And we have Napoleonic precedent for this in the form of Master and Commander. Yes, the plot line is fantastical, but the nuts and bolts of how that film is put together was very deferential to the history. They were very careful. They got surgeons, uh, experts in Napoleonic surgery in to talk about the surgery scenes and and train um, Paul Bettany in how to physically hold and manipulate the instruments. And you can see that level of detail all the way down. So it is possible to get it right. So it's curious to explore how you get it right um, and where the line needs to be drawn. Claire, I'm going to come to you to start on this, if I may. Where does the line need to be drawn? That's a very good very good question. I mean, I think we have the problem here that we're discussing a film that none of us have seen yet. Mm. Um, we've seen trailers, we've seen excerpts, but we don't, we haven't actually seen the whole thing. And therefore, you know, thinking about this marketing argument, are, are we looking at the most sensational parts, the parts that drift furthest away? Are we looking at, at something that's representative of the film? That we just simply don't know yet. So I think it's really worth remembering that. In terms of can we strike a balance? I think we can strike a balance. One of the things that struck me from the beginning is I love this opening shot of kind of um, of Marie Antoinette, you know, the really haughty Marie Antoinette. And OK, yes, her head would have hair would have been cropped and things like that. But I think it, it sets the tone really well. And I think it's from that opening moment that I realized this is much more about a story and about entertainment, which I'm fully for, rather than about historical accuracy. And there was another big moment as well, which is the casting of Vanessa Kirby and Josephine. I think there is definitely space for kind of historical interpretation. That's fine by me. I'm not taking this as a historical document of Napoleonic history as it was. But at the same time, given that Josephine was older than Napoleon by quite some way, I think you could have, especially the way that our society works today, maybe cast an older actress so you at least have that reflected in the, in the social dynamics. It's not just about the military scenes. It's not just about... Um, kind of the way that the, the Napoleonic court is developed and starts working around him. But I think some of those fundamental interactions and there are a lot of comments about this relationship in between um, Napoleon and Josephine at one point. And I was like, you could could have gone into that much more. So that was kind of my wish. Um, I was like, I'm fine with it being entertainment. I'm fine with it being historical fiction on screen. But there are just one or two moments that I've seen already that I just thought that maybe you could have gone slightly further with in line with today's society. And of course, someone might be listening to this in like 50 years time and be like, well, if they just want to mold it to their vision of Napoleon in 2023. But I think it's worth bearing that in mind, what you can do with history, not only what you can ignore, but also how you can instrumentalize it for the present. And I think one more thing is it's worth reflecting on how people view history on screen now again we haven't seen it we haven't seen if there's kind of like a disclaimer being like this is based on historical fiction etc um but i've seen more and more calls asking for disclaimers like this and i find that really interesting because it is it a reproach to us as audience members for not being able to tell the difference in between what's real what's not is it a reproach against filmmakers I don't know, um, but I find that blurring of what's on screen and what we understand to be history in multiple different films, series, etc., a really interesting phenomenon. I mean, part of the challenge here is that there is a long precedent of popular culture seeping its way into perceived historical memory, isn't there? Um, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, 
has yeah. examples of this um, in relation to the Battle of Waterloo. You know, things that we think we know Wellington said or, or that happened are in fact not the case. And we can prove them archaeologically, we can prove them from the evidence record. And yet you will get people who write books who will, you know, title their chapters based around some of these misconceptions. So there is uh, a long history of that. Um, and and I, I think on that, one of the most impressive books I remember reading, it was one of the first I really read about the Napoleonic period, was Natalie Petitot's, um work on Napoleon um, and looking at how Napoleon's been written about over time. And I find it a fascinating work because it varies so much. And I think we all agree, you know, it, of course it varies over time. It's going to be different in the 1820s to the 1830s to the 1840s. But she shows majestically just how much this image of Napoleon can be pulled in different directions whilst claiming to be historical. Um, it's a brilliant book for anyone who hasn't read it. I really recommend it. Luke, I'm going to hand it straight over to you there because we're talking about the manipulation of memory. And I do refer to you as Dr. Memory. So let me get your reactions. Yeah, I mean, it really does, you know, it, it, you guys have a very good point, right? It, it changes by decade. You only have to look at, uh, you know, Claire's brought up some excellent French examples on the British side. Uh, the perception of Napoleon changes per decade uh, from, you know, the 18-teens to the 1820s to the 1830s. Uh, by the time we get to the 18, uh, you know, 20s, he's, he's being portrayed on stage as a sympathetic character when a decade before he was still the Corsican ogre or, uh, uh, you know, whatever you want. Um, so there's always going to be changes. And there is the very, you know, there's the very, very compelling argument that several scholars have gone into uh, that, you know, films about a historical period always say more about the period they're made in than the period that they're set in. Um, my favorite example of this of all time is Robert Altman's MASH, which is in theory about Korea, but let's, real, let's be realistic. It is entirely about Vietnam. Uh, to the point where the studio made him put a, a title on the beginning that says, and then Korea, um, to make, to ha hammer that home. Uh, to, to go back to your original question, like, is it unrealistic to expect historical accuracy from films? I, to a certain extent, yes, right? And and there are ways that, that this film and all films do it that that none of us are, are sort of calling out. I think Claire is very right to call out the fact that, you know, Josephine was older, than Napoleon. And I think we all really do would love to have seen that age dynamic play out correctly. But at the same time, you have a story here, you've got a film here that tra charts 15 to 20 years of Napoleon's life. And the actor who's playing him is currently two years younger than Napoleon was when he died. And he's playing him throughout his entire life or in the entire life on film here. Are we, you know, there, there are things that are automatically going to be inaccurate because film works differently from real life um you know i keep coming back to style in this uh you know i remember uh, the debate about uh 300 right which is in theory a historical film but is so absolutely stylized that no one really complained or at least i was not heavily involved in in i'm still not heavily involved in classical and Roman and Greco-Roman history so I'm um you know I can't speak but like that was so stylized that I remember going to see it with a friend and her turning to me afterwards and saying did this actually happen like this is so stylized it's not even you know trying to be real this is a very different take than that and and I think that's that's really what comes down to it 
you know, I work in a period where you make or break yourself based on your accuracy, right? Well, uh, Waterloo exhibitions succeeded or failed based on the the um, whether the officers said it was accurate or not. These days, you might make more money if it was inaccurate. I don't know. You know, I'm not I'm not the the pop culture uh, marketing maven to tell you that. But it is, yeah, it's tricky, and I think it it really does. I think the, I think the decade question really does hit home. There is a really important point here, isn't there? That and you've you've touched on this. It's what two and a half hours, something like that. You're trying to tell Napoleon's life. I mean, telling the story of anybody's life in two and a half hours is going to be highly challenging. You're trying to tell Napoleon's life in two and a half hours. There are going to be gaps. There have to be. Um, and if you're going to have gaps, you've therefore got to embellish and fabricate and find ways to resolve very obvious inconsistencies in character arcs and plot lines and all the rest of it. You need to have the the, the plot devices of a film that I'm not going to pretend that I'm familiar with, but there is a way to building a film and therefore a film script that it means you kind of, you have to focus on kind of drawing people in at the start and, and providing the drama and then kind of sustaining that interest, but also kind of building the character. These are complex things that don't follow the linear chronology of a person's life. So I think there's there's a, a sense of, if at the very least, it's sensible to be resigned to the fact that you're going to look at it and go, well, it wasn't really like that in places. Um, Alex, let me bring you in. Um, as a, an 18th centuryist, I imagine you look at The Patriot and Mel Gibson and perhaps wince ever so slightly? Yeah, I mean, it, so returning to your original question, Zach, of is it possible to tell um, historically, you know, accurate things in, in a film setting? And and that's really a sliding scale, I suppose. Uh, there are films, I, I will say, there are historical films that professional historians love. I mean, we're, we're not just kind of sitting back here whinging, saying, ah, oh, you know, if only it was just like the documents that I read. Um, you know, I mean, there, there are many historical films that professional historians enjoy we should use in the classroom um you mentioned the patriot i i think to some extent the patriot and uh the idealized version of this napoleon movie that exists in our minds because none of us have seen it yet maybe maybe suffer some, from some some similar problems you're trying to tell the story of the whole revolutionary war in the south um you're trying to tell the story of Napoleon's in, in, entire life in, in a really short amount of time. And that involves making choices because you're set on telling this grand arc. And so I, I think for my part, the historical films that I enjoy the most, even, even the ones that are set over someone's entire life are really focused on one thread. Um, and, and so I can't recall exactly how many how many months your know, master and commander takes over. Um, the, the Duelists is a film that is centered on the entirety of the Napoleonic Wars, but it's centered on this thread of revenge between these two men. Um, the the a film that I just wrote a Twitter thread about, uh, The Northman, is is told of the story of this entire you know Hamlet figure's life, but it's centered on this this thread of revenge in his life. 
Um, and so I think it would be possible, absolutely, to tell a story set in the Napoleonic Wars focused on a particular aspect of a particular person's life really well in a way that would make historians just give it rave reviews. I'm not sure if this is the movie that Ridley Scott has set out to make. And so in that way, I think I'm what to some extent what I'm doing here is what I hate when people do when I send my manuscripts out for peer review. And that is, I wish you'd written something else. I wish you written a different book. So, I mean, I, I think my, my uh, very unfair you know, comment on this Napoleon film that I've not seen yet is I wish he'd made a different movie. Um, and I think I would have liked that different movie that he he would have made focused on a different topic better. I'm not sure if Napoleon's life really lends itself to a two and a half hour, you know, biopic. Um, yeah. Well, let me bring you straight in. But just to come on to that, I think the choice of a film is really interesting because when this was first announced, I was really, really excited. And my initial gut reaction was that it was going to be a series. Someone was just like, you know, there's going to be a new Napoleon. And I was like, great 10 part series. Totally imagine that 10 hours. That is my day completed. And I'm a very happy person. Um, and then it's a film. And we've seen fantastic films. You know, Oppenheimer the Summer was absolutely incredible. But I'm like, why cram so much into two and a half hours? Mm-hmm when you could actually explore a lot more through maybe, you know, six, eight, 10 hours in a way that's relatively easy for us in this day and age. And this is the Spielberg line, right? Steven Spielberg is is looking to do precisely that. I think he's looking at a a seven-parter on Napoleon's life. Um, So I'm with you that if you want to do the story justice, you can't really do that um, in in the context of a, a single blockbuster. And there's, I if I remember this rightly, my understanding was that the first film was only going to cover part of Napoleon's life, and that there were going to be sequels. And, and clearly, that wasn't the case. But I was quite surprised when I looked at the trailer and kind of went, "Well, we've got more than just Austerlitz and and Toulon and so on going here." You know, very obviously Waterloo, Wellington. It was clear that the timeline had been stretched. So that that caught that also caught me off guard, Luke. Yeah, I mean, I think I think part of this is is personality driven, right? You know, Spielberg uh, Spielberg has the the experience of Band of Brothers and the Pacific and the new Masters of the Air to fall back on. He knows how to do this in a miniseries way, and he knows how to do it with sort of character drama in a miniseries. I don't think you can really find a historian that won't go to bat for Band of Brothers. Um, you know, and even even the slight historical inaccuracies, right? There are some in there. Of course, there are. There are always going to be. Uh, but you know, it's it's got that sort of spirit attached to it. And I think Spielberg has that that backing. I think S- Scott has always been more of a cinema person, um, and I think that's what's driving this decision to a certain extent. But yeah, no, I agree. This is a this is a man. You know, honestly, this is a man's life. You could do. A crown style thing you could do four five six seasons you know do uh do you know do the first one on the the, the republic do the second one on the directory and the consulate then the empire then the second empire um you could do an entire season of like a small i would actually i would love to see this like a small pot boiler set entirely on saint helena where like the walls feel like they're closing in uh it would be incredible like and 
I think Phoenix would be amazing in that because it would give him like the the the, the, the character scope to just go to town on it. Um, you know, don't actually chew the wallpaper. There might be arsenic in it. Uh, but uh but other than that, you know, it, yeah, it, there's a lot of compression going on here. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of compression going on here. That speaks to a point that Claire's made to me in the past that Napoleon himself changes. And one of the challenges of this is going to be, how do you, do you provide a consistent Napoleon? Because Napoleon was not consistent. Where do you put those breaks and changes in his character? And how do you wrap that around the way in which Napoleon's character influences what he's doing on campaign, what he's doing politically, socially, and all the rest of it. Um, So it's, it's like you say, it, it, it's sort of, the, the the crown analogy is a really good one. Claire, let me bring you in. I know you were keen to say something. No, just talking about series made me think all of a sudden, especially this division in between Republic Directory, um, of the Versailles um, series, mm-hmm. um, which was filmed in Versailles, you know, very much has that kind of seal of approval, but it was definitely fantastical. So you have all this kind of odd historical accuracy sat in, you know, the um, in Versailles in these wonderful rooms, and then you have quite a fantastical plot line, which I found really interesting. And I remember watching it on the BBC and there was this like 15 minutes afterwards where basically they got two experts to discuss whether what we just seen was true or false. And I find that a really interesting um, way of dealing with historical documentaries, maybe in a way also that they could do back then, even though it's only a few years ago, that we can't do now. So there was a Marie Antoinette one recently as well, again, filmed in Versailles, um, a lot of fun. I really love the character of Bourmachie. Um, but that you haven't quite got that historical unpicking that we got when Versailles first came out. And I kind of wonder as an audience, I don't think we necessarily need it, but it's quite fun. You know, where where do those lines come? It might be quite boring to watch it on screen, but having two people talk about it afterwards is actually quite a nice way to see where that mm. artistic license comes in. And it's a nice response to what you were pointing to earlier about, you know, that emphasis this is not historical this is not might be based on historical events but this is not um you know the emphasis based on a true story it is not actually 100 historically accurate you know, that is the way i mean lord knows i've milked that um in terms of historian reacts um and you that's why you you that's when our job comes in right that's when I mean, we have to stand up and be counted luke this is the thing right i i had had Ridley Scott not said this stuff, we wouldn't be having this conversation. The film itself is a film. We all acknowledge that. And I, you know, I, 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 historians, I, 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 this will probably not be a shock to anyone who's listening to this, but just in case it is, brace yourselves. We're nerds. We love watching this stuff. I have yet to meet a, mil- a medieval historian who doesn't adore A Knight's Tale which is about as far from accurate as possible. You know, uh, as much as I would have loved to have seen Thin Lizzy at the jousting fields, it didn't happen. You know, we, we can put this aside. I think the problem comes with what he's saying rather than almost what he's doing. Absolutely. And that's a nice bridge into where I want to go next with this. It's almost like you've got experience of podcasting with me, Luke, <laughs> and, and how I work these shows. Um, but the, the next thing that we need, and I do mean need to address, is that how do we know what we know as historians 
when, yes, absolutely, we weren't there. Funnily enough, neither was Ridley. So it was a pretty kind of reductive um, comment to make at best. But there is a process behind it. And, and this is perhaps what, I don't know, I'm sure it was designed to anger people like me, because there is a a process that we spend a lot of our lives doing due deference to and and learning the skills of and acknowledging that it's always going to be a learning process and that his, doing history properly is hard and i think it's worth at this point just kind of responding to that and and excuse me emphasizing how historians go about that search for historical fact um and and then i suspect in time we'll go on to interpretation but let's let's focus on the, the knowing Luke, do you want to start off on this? Um, yeah, this the this is the broadest topic that you know, sort of how do we define our lives? Uh, no, thanks, thanks for the softball, Zach. Um, it, yeah, I mean, at the heart of what we do is research. Um, and my favorite quote about research is Albert Einstein: "If we knew what we were doing, it wouldn't be called research, right? We wouldn't have to keep doing it." Um, we go through different sources and all three of us or all four of us, because I include you in this, Zach, we all have very different source bases, right? We're all looking at different things. Uh, I live in um, newspaper archives in a way that would do absolutely no good to, to Zach in this because he wouldn't be able to find what he wants. Uh, you know, I do, I do comprehensive cultural searches. I dig through all of that. Um, and you have to interpret, you have to be aware of who's putting it out there, why they're putting it out there. You know, you can't take everything as gospel. You can't fundamentally take arguably anything as gospel. It's all about putting as many sources together as possible to try and patch together some form of general narrative uh, to sort of, um, you know, almost read between the lines right? Uh, except the lines aren't, you know, sort of an A4 style note paper. They are the static on an old CRT monitor. And you've got to d dive into what's between those. You've got to read between the pixels, as it were, and and really get into it. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I have to tell my students all the time, you have to be aware of who's writing something and why, what they, what, who's it for, what they want you to think, what they're trying to get across. Um, and at the same time, you have to be aware that, you know, you're dealing with, I just had to explain this to a student the other day. They're doing a paper on the Industrial Revolution as a turning point of world history. You can't argue that it's not, but they came up with absolutely nothing. And I realized it was because they were they were opening primary source databases and typing in the Industrial Revolution. And they didn't use that phrase back then, right? Things change like that. So you have to be aware, and that's where sort of secondary sources come in and you drive through that. Uh, I'm going to stop there because I can clearly talk about this a while and throw it to somebody else. Um, but yeah, if you want more, let me know. <laughs> Alex, let me bring you in at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, I mean, it's all about contextualizing yourself in time by, by source criticism. Um, you're looking to hear the voices of the dead. And much like when you hear the voices of someone in a modern context, they always have an angle. And so you're reading these sources for bias, um, you know, trying to uh, 
I mean, in my own work, right? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fairly old fashioned military historian, although I do a lot of social history. So I, because I work with, with lower class people, I give myself a pass on not just studying dead, dead white men. Um, so this is a, this is a, you know, you're reading letters between Prussian common soldiers in the 18th century and a letter from one soldier in a village accuses another soldier of infidelity. He's, he's off on campaign. He's cheating on his wife. And so this produces a huge flurry of correspondence between the village and the army, um, trying you know, the, the courts get involved. And so you're reading all of these documents with a sense for who made them, why they made them, what they're trying to prove, uh, what, what the angle of the individual is and what the purpose of the document is. Um, Talking with the dead is a lot like talking with people today. Uh, I mean, you have to engage in order to engage with any any sort of conflict in the world, you know, political conflict, military conflict today. You have to carefully read for bias, right, in order to be an informed citizen. Historians are just doing that in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And there is an inherent problem as well of, you know, Okay, let's say eyewitness is the most valid testimony. Although any ba any barrister or lawyer will tell you there's huge problems with that, and you see different things and all of that. Um, and you've made this point countlessly, Zach. These battlefields were large; they were messy; they were covered in gun smoke. What you could see doesn't actually mean that much. You know, it's all being dug out uh, and and you know ripped apart and put back together. Absolutely. A lot of memory for those who are fighting is actually forged not in the gun smoke, it's forged in the campfire smoke. With the exchange of stories, they get conflated and absorbed. Sometimes you can strip that away by going to letters if the letters exist, because there is less of a process. You have that slightly greater degree of immediacy. But even then, you have to do this process that we're all talking about that historians have a fancy name for, right? And it's called reading, reading sources against the grain, not just taking them at face value. So it's not just, oh, I know where to go and find some stuff that I can read. It's about a process of sifting and cross-checking that takes a lot of time. So it's not as though, as the, the, the worst interpretations of Ridley Scott's comments imply, history is just whatever you want to believe it is. And historians have kind of agreed on a set of lies. Um, it's, there is a a knack to it that i mean there's, there's a reason right that we spent seven years of our lives going through a ba an ma and a phd to get to this point that we oh, can your, kind of your go... english bias is showing hard so, there so my much. friend so much <laughs> how do they do it in the states then it's about 12 years yeah is it yeah my my condolences uh quite yeah. frankly claire let me bring you in <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted to add into that because um, I'm not a military historian. I work on the cultural scene, specifically on theatre, and I spend a lot of time working on police archives. And what's really interesting about this, I mean, police archives are fascinating for multiple reasons, but talking about that whole variety of different views, sometimes you have cases, and what's great is that they've gathered all the pieces of evidence together. And so you can see how we're talking about one thing and we have X number of, of versions of it, including from the local mayor, from the local prefect, from the, et cetera. And I always like using that as a way to explore, okay, we have one thing that happened, allegedly or not, and this is the way it's been taken. And you can also look at some of the consequences of the way that this has been understood. But the other thing that's great with um, police files 
is that they're really good at listing where else the relevant bits are. Mm. But of course, not all of those documents survived. And so I think it's worth remembering as well about what hasn't reached us, you know, whether that was at the time, whether they decided it wasn't important enough to um, to record in the first place, wasn't important enough to file. Then we have these accounts of Fushi during the 100 days kind of after Waterloo, just burning, burning, burning. Um, and lots of people did that and they had things that they didn't want to show immediately. So I think looking for those absences and thinking about those absences is, is really important as lo- along with thinking about what's present and what examples that we do have. And I think especially for something like the 1800s you know somebody writing in the 1800s has lived through the french revolution they have seen numerous different governments the consequences of writing something against a government could be at one stage death mm-hmm. i don't think people are are writing freely in the way that maybe we assume they are today it's, it is a definite act to put something to paper in a way that i think we need to remember as historians as well yeah. And yes, it's a version of of their truth. But again, as you've both expressed, we bring these all together and we can start to create a picture. Yeah, and I think we need to also remember, uh, just following up on that, Claire, you know, the number of things that don't get recorded, don't get preserved, or do get burned, uh, or just thought and said, but never written down. You have to add to that, that the number of people who just disappear from the historical record whether by accident or deliberately, or they're just like, I'm done with this. I'm going to go live on a farm and never talk about my war service again. Uh, you know, this uh, this does happen. Uh, also, Zach, I just want this on the record. Uh, we need a book from you called From the Gunsmoke to the Campfire Smoke. Okay. Um, thanks, commissioning editor. Um, much appreciated. Uh, when do I but- need to deliver the manuscript by? Uh, I'll be nice. Let's make it uh, earliest you can do, which is probably about 2045. Oh, probably more like twenty one hundred. Let's be yeah, honest. Fair enough. Um, but anyway, Claire, back to you. But speaking speaking of the like the gun smoke to the campfire, that opening to Stondas La Chartreuse de Bam is really interesting in that sense that you know he goes to Waterloo and basically just sees some smoke and and like a shot. But he's been to Waterloo, and that's what what matters. And so I think it's it's really interesting to see how you know people in the eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties are thinking about this as as what counts as Waterloo as well. Um, and during my PhD, I was really wary of memoirs. And, they, you know, in theory, they're like really easy to use because a lot of them are on Google Books and stuff like that. So it's it's a readily available source in some senses. But you just see how history is being pulled from one side to the other and how people are trying to justify what they've done 10, 20, 15 years ago, etc. Um, and I think maybe on at least kind of like the cultural side, we need to interrogate these memoirs slightly more, like what's going on here. Um, I think you've done it on the military side, but there can be a lot of information in them, but how do we use that information while still being historically accurate? And I find it quite interesting because all of us are sat here talking about like, we can build a picture, but, 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 but. Um, and I think we're all very cautious about what we do with sources. And we're almost kind of undermining our own argument being like, yes, Ripley, you're right. What? <laughs> um, but I think, there is a lot that we can garner from this and it is really interesting this period has been had so many works written about it but there are still so many un underused or undiscovered sources that still come to light especially from those marginalized voices so i think it's also being aware of how do we bring those those marginalized voices back to the fore be included in our research yeah 
As for the using memoirs on the cultural side, Claire, I'm working on it. Uh, sorry, Zach, go ahead. That's right. This this leads us to a question about interpretation, which was the other side of, of what Ridley was, um, frankly, getting plain wrong um, when he suggested, oh, it's the first two books that have something new. Um, Luke rolls his eyes so hard, he may have given himself glaucoma there. Um, because it completely misses the fundamentals of things like historiography, which for those who aren't familiar, historiography is the history of history. That's how we describe it. And it is that process that our interpretation and our understanding and the way in which we've looked at the past has gone on a journey. Equally, we've talked already about biases. You know, those first histories have an agenda of themselves. You've got a phenomenon of the inverted commas great men of history that only looks at the people at the top. That's how you create this issue with marginalized voices that Claire's just referred to. You then have all kinds of developments that gradually kind of work their way down towards the lower stratas of society. But then again, they have their agendas. You've got modernist and postmodernist approaches. You've got the Marxist approach to history. There are a lot of people who've looked at the past through their own eyes. And that inherently means that they then bring an internal understanding and potentially an internal bias, intentionally or unintentionally, to the way in which they look at the past. Mm -hmm. So you need to do more than just pick up the earliest two that were ever written in order to understand that process. Luke, I want to start with you, because again, it's sort of one of those things that you, you keep banging the drum on quite a lot. Here's the thing, right? Napoleon's greatest defender and his biggest detractor, if you just pluck them out of the bookshops, out of Twitter, even whatever, will agree on one thing. The man was a PR and propaganda master. And the first books about Austerlitz were written under him in France. And I think this goes back to what Claire was saying, right? You know, you putting pen to paper is an inherently political act in this period. Um, you know, if we write something these days that is flat out wrong or says he was a tyrant or a genocidal maniac or whatever, you know, yes, there's going to, like, the Twitter gang is going to come for us, but, like, we're not going to get arrested for it. But at this point, there was. Like, you, the first the first ones are in some ways the most inaccurate or the most fictional. Like, the first, you know, I, I, and drawing back on my, my Waterloo research for this, right, the first accounts of the battlefield that I have from civilians are talking about, like, how you can't trust the Dutch and the Belgians and how they all ran away and all of this. And it's just the British and, and you know, the Prussians weren't there. And it's, it's everything that is national propaganda. It's everything that is problematic. Even the letters that, like, our officers and men are writing are, are going to privilege their regiments, Right there, there is an inherent thing there. So that that whole idea of the first two books, you know, I, I, I he, he said that, and all I could picture was Napoleon rolling around cackling, like both horrified because the man read his history. Right, he you know he 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 read his Julius Caesar and his Marcus Aurelius and all of that, but at the same time, just sort of like, well, that's it. I've won. We're good. I have achieved, I have done what I set out to achieve, even in a way that maybe like him walking into a gift shop in Waterloo uh, wouldn't do. Like he'd be over the moon about that, like all the busts of himself and all of that. But like this is 
He's one. He, he gets to shape it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Claire, let me bring you in on this. Yeah, there are two things. Um, Historical consultants, which we can talk about in a second. Um, and the word propaganda. So this is my, my bee in my bonnet. Um, because it is propaganda, but I don't think it's propaganda necessarily in the way that we use that word, say, in the late 20th century during the Cold War. Um, and I think at the time, every ruler was putting out propaganda. And I think one of the problems when we start using that word is that it, you were actually using it in quite a nice way. But I think when we start talking about this on a larger scale, it becomes very negative. And it's like, no, it's the PR of its day. Yeah. need to get that message out yeah. because that's that's the way you're convincing hearts and minds you yeah. know you need people to support you that's how you're staying in power especially napoleon who wasn't born to that position his adversaries were to some extent um or definitely were but napoleon in in that sense had no divine right no family right to be in that position and i think that's something he's always very much aware of I know the um, thing that struck me when I was reading about the comments and, and obviously that like, most people I went on kind of like a Twitter hour, two, three, et cetera, um, and reading lots of, of um, articles online for which there seemed to be em- um, ever more. And one of them was talking about using Michael Brewers as a historical consultant. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, he is a great Napoleonic scholar. And you've got such knowledge in that sense going into the film. That's amazing. So why not talk about that in an interview? Being like, look, here are the history books, but these are the other people that we bring in to make sure that what we're doing is as accurate as possible or that, so that it works within our scheme of what this, this film is going to be. And I feel that that's something that's maybe just just fallen out slightly of, of the debates around these comments. Yeah, the, the Michael Brewers thing is is a curious one, isn't it? Because if you were going to consult somebody for this, you would consult Michael Brewers for, for very obvious reasons. His work precedes him on this. So you would therefore think, well, therefore, that has to mean that this is going to be fine historically. But there is this important point that we came back to, we talked about right at the start, of there is license and it is... And this is what Dan Snow tried to set Ridley Scott up for, you know, that a historian can come to you and you go, you know what, I've had enough. Uh, be quiet. This is how my vision is going. And and then he, he, he slapped that idea into touch. So there's, 
I'm curious to know what Michael's response will be when he does get asked this question. Um, I haven't seen it yet, um, but I, I wonder how he feels about the whole thing. Um, because he knows his name is sort of being used in association with the film. Um, and I'm curious how how he feels about the, the comments like that, but um, time will tell on that one. Alex, let me bring you in on this question of historical interpretations. Sure. Yeah, I, I guess I would say um, to, to a large extent, this this idea of propaganda is, is something that Napoleon doesn't invent, right? I mean, this comes back into these 18th century monarchies that I study. Uh, I mean, there are there are huge amounts of um, like broadsides or tracks that go back and forth between the, the Austrians and the Prussians in the Seven Years' War, where you're getting almost, you know, alternative, uh, you know, narratives of these battles. And, and they're always called relations, uh, right? This is this is the general's relation of the battle. If you read the Prussian general's relation, the Austrian general's relation, you're like, these are two different battles. Like, what am I what am I hearing about here? Um, and so this is why, obviously, I'm horrified by a lot of things that Smith has got to said, not, not least the get a life to historians bed. I mean, I have one that I like very much, thanks. Um, but I am very concerned about this idea of saying, oh, well, we, as long as we're close to it in time, chronologically, we're fine. Um, because I mean, imagine, and I, I don't want to be you know, terribly political, but imagine that the first book written about. Ronald Reagan's presidency or, or David Cameron's prime minister. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this just because something is close to you in time doesn't mean that it, it's very accurate. I mean, the first the first book written about, about President Kennedy's assassination. Now, that was the that was the right one. Um, you know, it's all it's all it's all fine. I mean, aggregating sources to some extent, getting away from something in time um, is not just a negative thing. Right. It allows partisan interpretations of an event to cool. Um, or, or they take on maybe a different, a, a different style of, uh, of partisanship. Um, so yeah, I just, just looking, I, I, I'm a big friend of the great guy, right? Like I, I don't, I don't like him personally, but I think he pays the bills to some extent. And so if I just read the first book that was ever written about Frederick the Great, I mean, how horrifying would that be? You know, I mean, I, I would not have any idea, um, of the, social history that has gone into understanding his time and his reign and just reading about, they say, if I, I just read, um, you know, this sort of great man theory history writing about Frederick the Great, uh, you know, this would be a really shallow understanding of this period of time, of him as an individual. Uh, and, and I guess I'm, I'm worried based on Sir Ridley Scott's comments that uh, we're going to get a very, very great man interpretation of Napoleon. I'm not trying to get down into the weeds here, but I'm, I'm a tactical historian, so you have to uh, bear with me. Um, I mean, if you if you watch the clip where he he talks about the Battle of Austerlitz, uh, and and there's he, he, Ridley Scott is narrating this kind of in the background. Napoleon is just saying things miles away from what's happening and instantly it's happening on the battlefield it's so, like tell me you don't know anything about like logistics or how you know 19th century armies work um i mean just the idea of him as a great man i mean it, it it's it's like we're reading you know the writings of historians from the 1830s and 40s you know, it, it, all that matters is this force of personality and 
it's not terribly compelling. Um, I, I've gone on too long. I'll, I'll let you take a moment of third thought. Claire, let me bring you in. But just to come back, Alex, to what you said about, you know, taking some time, taking some distance it is really important. Um, it's one of the reasons why I really enjoy the Ula histories of um, of Napoleon. It's just written really well. <laughs> anyway, um, but, you know, that's like 120 years afterwards. And it's 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 moving away from some of the bipartisanship that we see in the 19th century. But the other thing I wanted to add was we were talking quite a lot about sources but the way that we access sources now is not the same way that someone in the early 19th century is accessing sources. For one, I as a woman probably would not be accessing the sources. So let's think about that one. Um, also, you know, the National Archives in France were created in 1790. So come the 1800s, 1810s, it's still a relatively modern idea that all of this should be preserved. Obviously, they, they've always had archives, but the way that it's created for the nation, the idea of accessibility, that changes dramatically over time, including what goes in there, when it's opened up. It's not just there is one version, here's all the material, day one, let's go. It is a construction over time. And I think it's really worth reminding ourselves of that as well. And one of the things that I always like in French that doesn't work quite so well in English is that history is histoire which is also the same word for a story. And of course, it's not fictional, it's not invented, but it is it is a narrative. And I think it's worth reminding ourselves of that. And it is constructed over time. We can enrich it as well. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to remember that that journey that we and that, that these narratives go on. Luke, you, you look poised. Yeah, just to, just to, to second everything that Claire just said, um, and just to add to that and sort of build on it, you know, it's, it is, yes, it, archives are relatively new, national archives are a relatively new idea in this time period, but there's also things that we have access to. It, uh, yes, okay, you know, as, as we move further away from the event, as Alex says, to a certain extent, eyewitness ideas fade, but we also get access to more sides of things. You know, if if any of us go into an archive, we have access to, you know, more newspapers to start with than anyone at the time would have because it takes months or weeks for them to get there and half of them are used as fish and chip wrappers. You know, it, it, we have access to more of that. We have any form of, and this is, you know, again, this is a more national thing, but, you know, as things get declassified, as stuff like that happens, you know, we have... In a sense, yes, we're moving further away from it, but the other sense, you know, A, yes, partisan things are cooling, and B, it was, it, we just have, we have more access, especially as technology increases, you know, the number of, of, of newspapers that we can look through in a day has expanded exponentially to the point where you find things that you never would have found before. And that can send you down a rabbit hole and that can give you something else to look for in letters that you might've completely overlooked the first time. And now that you have that thread, you can pull it and an entirely new story emerges. That point about technology is really important. And I think it's, you know, we're on this point where you can find a quote somewhere and then you can see if you can find it somewhere else and as you say, kind of like in terms of newspapers, but it's the same in terms of, of letters. You can see if they've been edited somewhere else. 
beforehand you would have had to have gone to kind of like a card index and in a library maybe in a different nation's library to see like maybe if they've been published etc now we can do all of that within an afternoon and maybe then we have to go and do an extra trip but what we can do as you say has exponentially expanded from even five years ago ten years ago there is a, a kind of an idea that we've been touching on and sort of skirting around the edges of throughout this where we've been sort of heavily caveating everything and explaining how we're all sort of extremely careful which is this this notion of historical truth and whether or not you can get to the truth um, and whether you can free yourself as a historian from your biases, um, which is a huge challenge. Um, and much though I do try and be an, an optimist, there's a very compelling case to be made that actually it's it's impossible to completely remove yourself from the eyes that you have as an individual that is built around your lived experience. So you are going to um, have that influence the way in which you approach um, these questions. How do historians then go about trying to ameliorate that and trying to address that methodological problem? Alex, do you want to start? Sure, yeah. Um, so I, I, I will say I'm, as a historian, not, not not getting into my political views at all, but as a historian, I'm fairly conservative. Uh, and so I, I do think that um, even if, even if I, I would acknowledge, like we can never get to like the, the accuracy of the past or like, like the, like, I mean, it, it is the pastness of the past is something that we have to gra grapple with. I do think it's important that we try. I, I, I do think that, you know, leaving aside bias um acknowledging that if that's impossible to do it's still worth making the journey towards that um in in my own work uh i'm like a transnational historian uh and so one of one of the ways that i try to grapple with armies and structures in the 18th century is by not telling it through a national lens um, because so often the history of the army is connected to the history of the nation. And so, you know, the, the people in, in Britain think that, you know, the, the British troops in the Napoleonic Wars are about the greatest things in sliced bread. And P Americans think that Mel Gibson picked off the stupid redcoats with rifles from like half a mile away. And, um, this is, I think one way of trying to approach things not telling military history through a national story, but as a transnational story that I that I try to um, get rid of bias. I try to try to try to get closer to the the reality of the past. I I think it is worth saying though that um, there are things that we we can know historically. Like I don't, I don't know anyone who don't doesn't think like the Battle of Waterloo happened, right? I mean there are. There are things that we can, uh, yes, yes, Luke, perhaps uh, there are some people who think that maybe it was faked. I uh, have, I have encountered Waterloo truthers, uh, okay. 1890s, but, uh, but they did okay. exist. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess my, my, my point is that there are things we can know historically. I, I don't think we can know a lot of things about motivations. Um, we can know that events occurred without without getting into the realm of interpretation um even things like 
casualty figures, right? I mean, you would you would assume that this would be something that's knowable, and and it's it's really not. I mean, there are in the same army after the same battle, different officers produce different casualty lists, and they count dead and wounded men in different ways. And so, even even stuff that we we think is should be relatively concrete is is slipping through our fingers. That, that doesn't mean, I think, at least I would say, as a historian, that we should just throw up our hands and say, ah, it's all unknowable. Um, I, I do think that aggregating as many sources as possible, looking at sources from different perspectives, re- as we've already mentioned, reading sources against the grain, all of this provides us with a toolkit or a framework to try to understand the past as it occurred. And that's an effort I do think we should be making even if we might say at the end, we're not sure we're ever going to get there. Claire, let me get your thoughts. I think inherently in everything we do, you know, we speak a lot today about unconscious bias, and I think that applies to to whole swathes of, of our lives. Um, thinking about it, why am I interested in French history? Because I love France, because my parents bought a house there when I was younger. It's, it's where I've always been happy. So when I went to university, what was I going to do? I was like, oh, France. Um, and I love it. And and I know I've come across some people who find the passion with which I talk about France um, quite difficult. Um, and I'm like, well, what about X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, well, I could do the same to respective countries and things like that. But I think it's it's worth being aware of of where that comes in. And I think discussing your ideas with colleagues with friends I use a mixture of of academic colleagues but also friends who are just interested in history and I'm like you know this is what I'm thinking about arguing like what do you think does it make sense to you peer review in the sense is useful as much as it's daunting um people coming across me like actually that that argument's fine and one of the things I've I've really learned in my last book because it involved so many um marginalized accounts in in some senses some of it's the big kind of ministry of police narratives etc but some of it was really you know about what happened to kind of like a theater director in village x or town x and and there have been points where i've just had to say we don't know this is what the sources allow us to ascertain but we do have to acknowledge still that this this is what we can take and this is what we're going to have to leave for the moment and it might be in 10 years time, someone comes along and they can complete that, that whole, that would be fantastic. But I think that's part of the game as well, being like, well, this is what we can say. And I think also not being overconfident. I think in the academic system there, there is this desire to make everything about argument, everything to, to be world leading, et cetera. And I understand where that comes from, but I think there's also quite good practice and humility just to say this is what I can show you but here are the limits also as well um so those two things I am very aware of kind of where my passion lies and and how that shapes my work I try and use it as a positive force um but I know that I have kind of like these processes and check to make sure that that other people agree with me that I bring people along with me as well um and then also this this policy of being like I can say x why doesn't fit into that because we don't have the sources to say so. Okay, doke. And Luke, I mean, your your book is literally built around the concept that historical truth is what people want to believe it to be. So how do you 
perceive this and navigate that problem? The, at the risk of sounding a little bit too much like a self-help book, uh, the first step is acknowledging that it is a problem. Acknowledging that there are biases in everything in, that we read and, and acknowledging that there are biases in ourselves, right? You know, our own politics influence this, our own upbringings. Claire's, you know, the point of being happy in France as a kid and that sort of shapes all of that. It's absolutely the case. Um, you know, it, it, it is it, it is very, very tricky. Um, in... <sighs> Again, it comes back to an aggregate, right? That's the way you have to do it. You have to get as many viewpoints as possible and that will allow you to sketch the the whole thing. You know, it's like taking, um, uh, it's like opening a door slowly, right? You just crack it, you're not gonna see much, but as you move it more and more and more, and yes, this is actually a combat metaphor. I think Alex is nodding along with that. Um, you know, you you clear the room more through that pie method, and that's how you you open it. Um, but yeah, and, and and I think it really has to come down as well to to especially in the in the cultural production side, what's successful, because that's going to shape enormously who sees this stuff, right? The the stuff that is seen by more, you know, uh, I can I can vouch for this in some of the Waterloo exhibitions. Claire can absolutely vouch for this in what what popular plays spread ideas and things like that. Um, you know, papers with bigger readerships have more clout, uh, and it's just you have to be aware of of you know what's being spread, who's drawing from whom, uh, is and, and politics especially, and and that's not just personal. Is it a liberal paper? Is it a reform paper? Is it a conservative paper? You know what's what's coming out of that. Uh, you know to give to give everyone a modern example. You know it's you you can't just pull up the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and say well these two don't agree and therefore there's no truth. The same as you can do Fox News and MSNBC, right? You have to look at both and when you and you if you can if you can divide the two by each other and also pull up Al Jazeera and BBC and all of that, then you might have some idea of what is happening. There. I just wanted to come on to this idea of of bias as well related to Napoleonic history because I had the distinct impression that 2015 changed the game slightly in the in the way that until this point the bicentenaries have been used not necessarily for nationalistic purposes but there'd been a definite kind of victor loser narrative that had been going on and I found, at least with 2015, that actually the exhibitions relating to Waterloo, the, the public events, were actually much better at recognising the, the complexity of the battle. Not necessarily win or loser, but actually there are more, there's much more going on here than we can easily explain in, say, like a 200 word resume. Luke? I do want to jump on that to agree with it. Absolutely. And I think one of the ways it was done was, was by um, sort of celebrating not just the battle, but how the battle was remembered and all of that. And that sort of gives you an opening, but there are still examples. My favorite of all time is uh, Belgium released a two and a half euro coin to commemorate the victory. 
Uh, they wanted a two euro coin, but because it's a normal denomination, the other euro nations can veto it and France vetoed it. So they produced a two and a half euro coin instead. Uh, so there is still a little bit of tension there in, in places. Yes, you can also, if you go to Memorial 1815, you can um, purchase a zero euro note of Waterloo. <laughs> um, so read into that what you will. Alex, let me bring you back in. I also think that as historians, and certainly Ridley Scott would agree with this, but we have to kind of be wary of the the rule of cool. Um, and and this kind of comes to what Luke was saying about, you know, it's it's who is reading this, it's who's being influenced by these works. Um, but it, it's also stories that almost like seem kitschy or or seem to make sense on the face of them get, get widely repeated. And you think of, of American history with like the militia legend that emerges uh, at, after the Revolutionary War, um, where, you know, it really wasn't the Continental Army, uh, you know, that played an important role in defeating the British because the Continental Army is a standing army. It's 18th century Americans. We don't like standing armies. They're a threat to liberty. So instead, it's the militia and it's the riflemen who it's not they played a negligible role in the war they they were important but their story becomes magnified and so when something is kitschy or it sounds right like you know napoleon shot some cannons at ice and soldiers fell through and drowned in large numbers and wow that's visually stunning and it's amazing and you know that that's what gets remembered and actually annoying historians come through and say well you know maybe maybe two guys drowned in the ice at austerlitz and it's not that really big big of a deal it was a small part of an overall battle um but because it sounds right because it sounds nifty that becomes the centerpiece of how ridley scott tells the story of the battle of austerlitz it was all about pushing them onto the ice and you know i mean so so as historians we, we have to watch out for bias but we also have to watch out for like simplicity and simple answers and i mean complexity i think is is not just our enemy it's also our friend in a lot of ways yeah. i think also one of the things maybe playing to our advantage is that most of us are working in a transnational context um either directly comparing different armies or having been born in one culture, working on a different culture, working on that culture abroad. And I think that does bring an awareness simply because you're reading a different different side of events um, than maybe if you were in 1820s, either France or Britain, writing about what happened at Waterloo. Um, and I think it's worth remembering the advantages of that transnationalism as well and how it can refine your criticism and, and, and your analytical skills too. And this brings us very neatly to the, the final point on which we'll close, which is sort of the dangers of perpetuating historical myth and why getting this right matters. Um, Claire, do you want to start us off on this one? Yeah, it's really complex. <laughs> if you'd have asked me an hour ago, I'd have had a really nice nifty answer for you. And now getting it right matters because it is fundamentally the truth. Um, and myths that are based on on groundless claims or, or a, a definite kind of nationalistic retellings can be put to dangerous uses. Um, we've seen multiple examples of that over over history, um, over time, whether that's political, whether that's that's culturally. Um, 
I think it's really important to try and get the truth out. I get that this is entertainment. I'm really excited about the film. I'm glad that in a way it will touch so many more spectators than than anything that we could have done at kind of like a university or academic level in that sense. But it does fundamentally matter that the message is right, that the, tr- the truth is there. Yeah, it comes back to that old adage, look, folks, at the end of it, you do need to pick up a wretched book. Because, you know, there there is more to this than than what we're going to see. Alex, you were nodding emphatically throughout that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think myth making is is dangerous because sort of not to not to quote Yoda from Star Wars, but myth making leads to essentialism. And when essentialism takes hold and gets into decision making, a lot of horrors can result. Um, a lot of underestimation. Um just thinking that your your national story is a simple story, one that you can draw clear lessons from that can lead you down very dangerous paths. Uh, and and so I, I think especially it, it might, you know, to some folks it might seem a little odd, you know, that we're worried about the details of getting people who are fighting with like smooth more muskets and cannons, you know, 200 years ago, right? Like this is odd, right? Um, but when you, when you, reduce the telling of military history to a story of national essentialism it can it can lead people to dark places uh, and so that, I, I would say that's one reason why uh yes it's a fun movie i'm going to see it my entire work department the history department at my university is all going to see it together like the day after thanksgiving um so yeah we're super excited for it don't get me wrong um but uh i i would say the the mind that wanders down the path of myth making can easily lead to essentialism this essentialism can lead us to some dark places and i i guess that's that's one of the reasons why i'm concerned absolutely um and of course we're those of us who fixate on on armies and and combat and all the rest of it you know the the, there are lives ripped apart by this whether they're civilians impacted by conflict whether they're the combatants themselves, the veterans who make it home, the families that are torn apart by losing a loved one. There is a vast amount at stake on a personal level, never mind a political level. And for all that we've said a lot about, you need to be careful about overstating, have you got to, inverted commas, the truth at last. Um, doing the, the due diligence is something that we owe those people in order to... Um, do I mean do right by their trauma isn't quite what I'm I'm trying to get at, but you I'm sure listeners can kind of get that general sense of, of where I'm going with this. Claire, it's a fundamental respect to the past as well, um, and I think yes, there are very much the, the the kind of essentialist arguments as we've been speaking about, but it's also thinking about millions of people died. So, so how do we ethically bring bring that back? How do we learn lessons from history as well? I think that's a really important point. You know, history happens. We can't change that. But what we can change is what we learn from it and what we therefore take for our present world and for our future worlds. And I think that's another reason why getting the message and getting that historical accuracy away from the myth back to kind of history as it happened is so important so that we can make sure that our future world is as positive as 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 enriched from the past as possible in a positive sense 
Luke, let me give you a say on this. If we don't have the truth, what do we have? Right? That is fundamentally what this comes down to. Not only what are we doing here, because, yeah, like, you know, it, look, all four of us will admit that we have dedicated our lives to an inherently niche subject. Um, admittedly, one that I think all of us could make a compelling argument for, taught in a classroom does, you know, teach empathy and analysis and things that the world needs. But yeah, on a basic level as a, a society or a civilization, if the truth doesn't matter, then it's going to fall apart. And I'm not, yeah, like what, as Alex was saying, like, we're not, you know, the, the truth of this is not going to destroy civilization, right? But he, but both Claire and Alex make very good points. You know, Alex with the sort of, you know, the, the, the false history can be manipulated. I think everyone who's listening to this is thinking about the 1930s, but I'm actually going to give you another example because that one's been tied out and I really do not want the takeaway of this being that he's comparing Hitler and Napoleon. But I'll give you another one. Um, Mark Twain famously commented that he knew the South had won the Civil War of books when he saw a young Boston socialite on a train in the Northeast throw down her copy of Gone with the Wind with disgust and declare those damn Yankees just burned Atlanta. That idea that the South had been unfairly punished, that it had been, that it lost, you know, that it, that it had, you know, sort of the lost cause, all of that was a crucial part of Jim Crow, was a crucial part of letting all of that go for another hundred years. And that has shaped the lives of so many in the South of the United States and further, right? So there's that. And on the other side, coming back to this, right? You know, let's talk about the Napoleonic Wars. This cements European hegemony for the century. This is what does it. And that is what leads to a hundred years later, there being two independent nations in the entirety of Africa. Never mind the rest of the world, right? This is this emerges, like this spreads and it does stuff. And those stories matter. And getting to the truth of that, to honor the people who died, to honor the people that suffered, to honor the people that stood up and said, absolutely not, you know? And at the same time to explore the, the, the misuses of truth. And yeah, you know, Ridley Scott can say this is entertainment as much as, as until he's blue in the face. And we will all agree with him. I'm looking forward to seeing this too. But he's also said, I hope to turn people on to history through this. What history are they going to be looking at, Sir Ridley? Because you've just dismissed all of it. That is an emphatic point on which to end. So there you go, folks. Three historians and a pleb sitting down to discuss why history matters. A much longer response um, than perhaps there was time for when Ridley sat <laughs> excuse me, when Ridley sat down with Dan Snow. But sometimes in order to do these things properly, you need to take the time. Huge thank you to all three of my guests. Dr. Alex Burns, Assistant Professor of History at Franciscan University, author of Changing Face of Old Regime Warfare. 
Dr. Claire Civiter, researcher and lecturer at Bristol University, AHRC, BBC Next Generation Thinker, and author of Tragedy and Nation in the Age of Napoleon. And last but by no means least, Dr. Luke Reynolds, assistant professor at the University of Connecticut and author of Who Owned Waterloo. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for such a reasoned and intellectually stimulating discussion. And I'll look forward to seeing you back at some point in the not too distant future. Thank you, Doc White, Dr. Zach White, early career Leverholm Fellow at the University of Southampton. It all got very formal at the end, didn't it? It did. Folks, if you're new here, remember to hit the subscribe button so that you can find your way back. And if you're loving the show, please remember to leave a review. It's the most powerful thing you can do to help the show reach a wider audience on our quest for one million downloads. Much love to all my Patreon supporters. Shout outs to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Indiana Fats, Stephen Gillen, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meakin, Mark Anscombe, Rob Coughlin, Bruins Girl, Noah Fink, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Chris Pramas, Anthony Gumbau, an anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Ulrich Ducardo, James Fluick, Roger O'Donnell, Natasha Hobday, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, David Graylick, Ted Andrews, David Milinski, Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgy, Reto the Sci-Fi Fan, Sam Moore, <coughs> Wyatt Pollock, Carol Dixon-Smith, Roland Shark, and Jason Morn. And the Admirals, John Haynes, Ryan Diamond, J.C. Kaiser, Bob Burnham, Mike Guest, Liam Telfer, Todd and Ned Campbell, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Mark Duckers, David Maxwell, David Priest, Graham Callister, Sean Sullivan, Stephen Ashworth, Dan Hazelwood, Kate Walcom, Steve Carter, and Clemens. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars Pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.